Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. All right, Coop, appreciate you. Big day, big night. I'm Chris Cuomo, and welcome to Primetime. The biggest step toward normal since this pandemic started was taken today. The CDC freed the fully vaccinated from wearing masks. Masks have been recommended since April 3rd of 2020. But no more for almost anywhere a fully vaccinated person wants to go, alone or with others, whether the others are vaccinated or not. Just imagine the simple ability to share a smile, to walk down the street with a cigar in your mouth as I did today. To not rush to cover when you see someone outside. To just be normal. Not that masks were like wearing a suit of armor. Let's be clear. clear. People overhyped it for too long anyway. Made it too much of a burden. But it does show. When we do the right thing, we make progress. There are some caveats. There are rules depending on buses and planes. But the biggest caveat is that this change only applies to the vaccinated. The fully vaccinated. So tonight, let's smile mask-free at the headline and then dive into the unanswered questions. Top of the list. What does no masks for the vaccinated mean for the unvaccinated? Well, it means they have to wear masks still. Who's going to know? What about those who have kids in their homes who haven't had the shot? What do they do? What do the kids do? What will it mean for schools? For businesses, how do businesses, to the original point of who's going to know, how do they police this if there's no passport system and the federal government says they are reluctant to have a data bank? But before we get into the micro issues, and we will tonight with someone who used to run the CDC, there is a macro issue. There is a curse that comes with this blessing because isn't how this happened another example of the political game being played that we have to expose and do better than? Just last night, I was chasing the CDC director about making this exact change. Listen. You're playing it too safe. That is the criticism. We have the clinical trials. We need to make sure that it's working outside the context of those clinical trials. And importantly, we need to make sure that they work against our variants. I'm really looking forward to updating our guidance very soon. Let's do it right now on this show. What data do you have that suggests you need to go slow before you let people completely unmask and live their lives uh, if they've gotten the vaccine? Well, you know, we we know that data are emerging, have been emerging with regard to the variants. We do want to make sure that those data are going to be out and demonstrate that our vaccines will work. And um, I'm looking forward to updating our guidance very soon. Doctor was saying that I was looking down because I had the list of the studies here and I said, I don't even I don't even know what she's waiting on. And why didn't the CDC director just say it last night? I don't care about if it's said on my show or not. Don't come on the show at all, but say it to the American people. They didn't know that they were going to change it just a few hours later. Did They really burn the midnight oil last night. Or is this just about politics? We know it's not about the science. The science was there for some time. 
Now, you're going to hear some say, this is too much at once, this rule change, this recommendation. And that's all it is. Everybody's going to have to figure out for themselves on the state, local, and private levels. Uh, And that it's going to disincentivize people, this move. Listen to this. Because now they can just unmask anyway. Well, people could always cheat. And the CDC head said this wasn't done to get people to get the vaccine. Why not? You know, all of this just reeks of the game to me. And I want you to be aware of the game so that you can ignore it and move to what matters. They've known for months that the vaccine works. Too much too soon. The country is splitting at the seams. The CDC didn't mean this to incentivize. Why not? Look, I don't get bribing people to get the vaccine. And this million dollar deal that's going on in Ohio to get the vaccine, to get people to get vaccinated, is odd to justify to all those taxpayers. But if you choose to get the vaccine, why don't you get the preference that the science suggests? I've been saying this for months. So this is good because it is about the science. I still don't understand why they played so safe for so long. And this is not damned if you do, damned if you don't. It's damned because you didn't until now. Did the hesitancy fuel vaccine hesitancy? The move may get more people to get the vaccine now, but did the delay jeopardize the reality of reaching herd immunity? However, on a night like this, it is important to balance the plus and the minus. And this is indeed a milestone. Think about what a difference five months has made. That was when we did the first vaccine. Remember? To the frontline critical care nurse, Sandra Lindsay, here in New York, five months ago tomorrow. Remember all the ifs and buts? Now, more than 118 million people in this country are among the fully vaccinated, 34% of the population, about half what we need to get to herd immunity. That's a little scary, right? Half. Look, we're doing better, but that's why you still see the cases in the 40s of thousands. So there is still a way to go for this country. We still have a a way to go to go for herd immunity. The question becomes, How do you see it? Well, we've come a long way from the days when we were told by our last president that this was all going to go away magically. The White House has now lifted its mask mandate for vaccinated staffers. President Biden walked out maskless to announce the good news. If you're fully vaccinated and can take your mask off, you've earned the right to do something that Americans are known for all around the world. Greeting others with a smile, (laughs) with a smile. So it's a good day for the country. That is true. Now, how good? What does this mean and what does it not mean? Let's bring in a better mind, former CDC acting director, Dr. Richard Besser. Good to see you, Doc. Good to see you, Chris. So help me understand, you know the politics and the policy. I'm chasing around with Dr. Walensky last night about this. And she's like, well, we got to make sure we got to make sure what to make. And then it comes out this morning. That's just politics, isn't it? I don't, I don't think it's politics. I, I think it's, you know, when when was she allowed to release the information that, that she had? By who? I, I think you've you framed this in, in, in the right way. This Wait, hold is on a huge. second. Hold on a second. Yeah. Hold on, because I'm, I'm going to get you on this one. And then we're going to get into what really matters. <laughs> okay. But she wasn't allowed to release it by who? By politicians. They were just making a play on this. And I'm saying... I I don't care that she said it or not on the show. That's not the point. The point is, there is a legitimate criticism, Doc, that they've known things and not told people when they knew. 
almost like an overparenting of the American people. You knew about surfaces not being as big a deal. You didn't tell us. Uh, you knew about aerosolization being the main con- you know, way of, of cooperating this and communicating it. You didn't say it right away. You knew that outdoor was more likely like 1% than 10%, and you didn't say it right away. That's what I'm talking about. Can you justify those delays? You know, here, here, Chris, when, when you're releasing something like this, which is a dramatic shift, mm-hmm. you, you, you frame that right. This, this marks a turning point in terms of, of, of the pandemic response in the United States, not globally, but in the United States. Um, I was really glad to see that she presented the data that informed that decision because it needs to be driven by the data. And the data was, was strong. We're seeing steady declines in every state in, 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 in the union. We're seeing hospitalizations declining, deaths declining. We're seeing more studies that show that these vaccines work not just in the trials, but in real life, that in, in countries that are using vaccines, you're seeing declines. And there's increasing data that people who are vaccinated are not very likely to spread it to other people. And so I like that she laid out the, the reasoning behind such a big decision. And we, even with that big decision, you're hearing a lot of people today, some are saying it was way too slow, and some are saying, whoa, why are you moving so fast? I think is, this is the right time to make this call. Well, remember, we're in a climate where the negativity is a proxy for insight. So she's going to get criticized because that's what they're going to do to the Biden administration. And frankly, they made themselves vulnerable to the right, questioning what they do by being exposed for having been slow about it. But my point is this. Uh, You say this now. Great. But do you think not saying it sooner risked not getting us to herd immunity? Well, I, you know, I don't talk about herd immunity. I don't think herd immunity is something achievable. What What I like to talk about is that every single person who gets vaccinated gets us closer. They help reduce the transmission Mm -hmm. in community. They help protect themselves, their families, those around them. The idea that there's this magic number that we get to, I, I think is the wrong way to think about it because people tend to live around people they agree with or people who have similar beliefs. And so even if you hit a magical number of 70%, you're going to have communities that are 50%. And with that, you're going to be able to see places where it continues to transmit. And I worry that saying, you know, it's 70% or nothing can dissuade people from from getting that shot, which actually can make a difference to those around them. I agree. What do you think about the enforcement model here? You know, with masks, it was, I'm not going to wear a mask, but you knew if somebody was wearing it or not because you have eyes. The, this is sneaky, you know, you don't know. I don't have a mask on. I say to you, I'm fully vaccinated. Federal government doesn't want to do a bank. State by state, they're kind of doing it. You have the Excelsior Pass in New York. How do you enforce something like this? Well, you don't. And and what what the the big takeaway here is that if you are fully vaccinated, your risk of having serious disease is really, really low. The data out of Cleveland Clinic, 99.3% of people admitted to the hospital. Doctor, people say, but the Yankees, but the Yankees. Is it just the J&J vaccine? Go ahead. Yeah, but... But when you look at the Yankees, the, the critical piece about the Yankees is they weren't sick. And when, when you look at the amount of virus that the players had who tested positive, it was really, really low. And so what you're going to find is that, yes, some people will test positive or get infected who've been vaccinated. But we're seeing that they're not likely to transmit to others. And that's the critical piece there, not the fact that some people who, who get vaccinated will be infected. So it, it, it supports, I think, the idea that if you're fully vaccinated, you're in really good shape. 
The enforcement piece, though, is it, it's not enforceable. And right. what it says is if you decide not to get vaccinated, the, the risk is primarily on you. No, we can right. talk about kids because that's the one area where, where that breaks down. But the risk is primarily on those people who decide, hey, I'm not going to get vaccinated. So and, and yeah, go ahead. I just first of all, for the audience, eight New York Yankees tested positive for coronavirus after getting the J&J vaccine. But just so you know, 78 percent of the people who got the J&J vaccine within the Yankees organization, uh, players, et cetera, 78 uh, percent did not test positive after the vaccine. The vaccine's efficacy is 72 percent. So they're still ahead of the, uh, the curve. Doc, as a pediatrician, uh, would you advise your uh, families to give the vaccine to their kids 18 and under? Yes. You know, I, w- I would recommend not 18 and under, 12 and up. Yeah, because that's right. the group 12, that 12 been, to 18. Been authorized yeah. for. Yeah, I, I definitely would. And and I would because, you know, that's a group where you know, the older children get the, the increased, uh, the, the risk increases in terms of severity. Uh, although very few children uh, uh, have died from this, uh, it's in the hundreds. Uh, that's That's far too many. And I worry about the long-term consequences. There have been thousands of kids who've had this, this unusual multi-inflammatory syndrome. As a parent, the idea that you could get your kids vaccinated and then not have to worry about them this summer, mm-hmm. I think is huge. And the idea that kids could go to high school this, this fall and it could be a normal high school mm-hmm. year is, is absolutely incredible. So I recommend it. I, I recommend it for my, for my patients. It's children younger than that where the rules still apply. Kids younger than 12 should be wearing masks. Uh, they should be social distancing when they're, when they're uh, around uh, uh, people, when they're indoors. Those things still apply until there's vaccines for, for that age. And it's another reason why adults should get vaccinated to help protect those kids. Dr. Besser, appreciate you. Good to see you. Thank you, especially on this, a big night, a milestone indeed. So Good to see you, Chris. Absolutely, always. What does this news today mean in the context of history? How times are changing and what this means for not just the pandemic, but our approach to other problems. A better mind. This is a brilliant mind. Next. The face mask, it's been so many things in this pandemic, a game changer in stopping the spread, a constant visual reminder of a virus in our midst, a symbol used by both left and right to reflect political differences rather than what we, the reasonable, see it as, highlighting that we're all the same, we all get sick, and what one of us does affects the others. We are all in it together. Trite, but true. So a milestone. Let's get some perspective on what this means from Thomas Friedman, Pulitzer Prize winning columnist for The New York Times, author of From Beirut to Jerusalem. Good to see you, brother. Good to be with you, Chris. Thanks. What does this mean to you? Well, you know, Chris, when I and my wife got vaccinated, um, I, I was personally relieved, but I didn't feel it was really the end of anything. I felt personally more secure. In hearing that announcement um, from the CDC this afternoon, I felt that we were finally at the beginning of the end of this. Uh, I felt that there was going to be a real return to normalcy for, for me, my family, my friends, society. Um, and and um, most of all, you know what I thought about, Chris, and you alluded to it in your introduction. We've just been through a crazy two years. I mean, crazy at so many levels uh, because of the past president and uh, the divisions in the society. 
I don't know what factor was politics and Trump and what factor was the pandemic and, and the fact that we all had to go around with our faces covered. But I am hopeful that with people taking their masks off, we can talk to each other in different ways, look each other in the eye, see each other smile or wry grin, whatever, that that, that too will, will reduce the temperature in the country, the political temperature. So that's kind of my hope. But I do, I do think this is the beginning of the end. It's not the end for all the reasons that your previous guest said. But um, today's a really good day. And you know what else it's a good day for, Chris? It's a good day for science. What we've learned, it's so remarkable how good these vaccines really are. Mm. Um, uh, and, and I think it's, a, it's an amazing day for science as well. Now, look, we got a long way to go. Um, but, you know, the mask was a little bit of a portent for us to see where one party was headed, right? The irrationality, uh, the investing in a lie about the mask uh, was really the precursor to where we're seeing the GOP right now. You wrote in your latest op-ed, if House Republicans follow through on their plan to replace Cheney, which, of course, they did by a voice vote, uh, it will not constitute the end of American democracy as we'd known it, but there is a real possibility we'll look back on May 12, 2021 as the beginning of the end unless enough principled Republicans can be persuaded to engineer an immediate radical course correction in their party. The problem against the premise is the reality that they are moving more in that direction as they continue down the path of attrition. They are going for white fright. And the momentum is in the direction they're headed, not in any other direction, Tom. Yeah, I, there's no question, Chris. You know, I was thinking in preparing for our conversation that um, the midterm elections uh, this year, 2022, I mean, next year, 2022, they are going to be hugely important uh, for, for this reason. Um, the Republicans go into these midterms with so many advantages after the last census through gerrymandering. They're automatically going to get a few more seats. And historically, midterms tend to work against the incumbent you know, party. Uh, so they've got a lot of advantages. What we're going to see in these midterms, uh, as this party that has now made it a prerequisite to be a leader in this party and to be a candidate endorsed by the leader of this party, that you have to embrace a big lie. We're going to see if they actually uh, suffer in the midterms for that. If they do come out of these midterms, uh, not holding the House, not winning the House back, not winning the Senate back. I think that would be one of the most healthy things that can possibly happen to our country now, because that then, Chris, will force that party to confront their Trump problem. Maybe. And I think the interesting political question, because they're going to want to survive, and if they lose the midterms, the idea they're going to go into 2024 backing him, well, that, that would be political suicide. And so I, I think this is a really important election, and I think that's going to be really interesting. We see these lists of principled Republicans who have said they're not going to you know, support Trump. We've seen what Liz Cheney's done. You know, if only three to five percent uh, of Republicans decide that they're not going to sign on to this, we could have a very different midterm. If we have a very different midterm, I think there's a chance that we're going to get some decent, stable governance. If the House Republicans, given what they have come to embrace, win the House, the last two years of the Biden administration, they're going to be crazy. These people, when Trump was in power, they at least had some incentive not to blow the whole government up. If Trump is not in power, their incentive is going to be to completely derail Biden. And if that happens, I mean, uh, we just have no time to lose. And that will be a disaster for the country.
Well, look, I mean, Mitch McConnell told you that that's where they're headed right now. Their position is opposition. Here's my question for you. How do you get ahead of the determinative issue of the midterms, which we know right now, which is election security? They're going to say that any race that doesn't go their way is rigged. What should the media do? What should the system do to prepare for that in advance? Because it's going to happen. Well, the scary thing, Chris, and I wrote about this in, in, in that column you referred to, is that people have been focused on um, the uh, election security laws that some of these states have passed, like Georgia. Um, oh, you can't give someone in, in line a glass of water. Um, that's actually a, a, a red herring, the really dangerous thing that is going on right now. It's a mugging of democracy in broad daylight. Is the, the measures that Georgia and other states have taken to actually change who gets to count votes and who gets to certify votes. And if you look, and the studies have been done, and I quoted one, at the measures they have put in, if these measures had existed in 2020, mm-hmm. it's very possible that Trump would have stolen this election. So uh, I, the answer to your question is, we have to be enormously vigilant about these things. We have to oppose them. But at the same time, my hope, Chris, is that there's a lot of voters, uh, uh, particularly the kind of black and brown voters that the Republicans are trying to disadvantage by these laws, who are basically going to say to them, you're talking to me? You're talking to me? You, you don't want me to vote? Well, I, I'm going to get up at 6 a.m. and I'm going to wear a, you know, a, 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 you know, a water pack on my back if I need to, but I am going to vote. And I think they really better be careful because they are just sticking a finger in a lot of people's eye and their reaction is, you don't want me to vote? Oh, you are now going to see me vote, my grandpa vote, my grandmother vote. I am going to drive anyone I can to the polls. I think you're going to see a lot of that reaction. You are not going to steal this election. Mm. In the interest of this being a positive night, give me that De Niro impression (laughs) one more time. (laughs) Give me that you talking to me one more time. You talking to me? Oh, that's good. That's good. That's got, got the hair in the back of my neck, all three of them. Tom, take care. Thank you very Thank much. You, Tom Friedman, ladies and gentlemen. Pleasure. Developments on the Matt Gates front. Remember, we told you his friend had to be cooperating with the feds. This was not about inside information or even great reporting. It's how the system works. Joel Greenberg, who is also under criminal indictment, is going to plead guilty in days because that's what you do. If you want a plea deal, there are other things that had to happen for us to reach this moment and ask the question, what does it mean for Matt Gates? And we know them all. So answers ahead from a former FBI big shot next. All right, we have developments tonight in two big MAGA world criminal investigations. You have new court filings that tell us that Congressman Matt Gates, so-called wingman and indicted sex trafficker Joel Greenberg, is going to plead guilty Monday. <gasps> no, not so much. But you have to understand why the fact that it's not a surprise uh, doesn't make it very important, and I'll explain why. The Wall Street Journal has reporting on the Feds turning up the pressure on longtime Trump money man. Alan Weisselberg. Now that is a little bit more of a (gasps) because it has been an open question as to whether or not they thought they could pressure Weisselberg, who is the CFO, okay, the chief financial officer, not just for Trump, but for his father. So he has such profound understanding of where money went and why that if they really believe they can get on him, 
That is a key man for any reckoning of anything they want against the former president. We've spoken with key players uh, in both of these situations on this show. Let's unpack where we stand with Asha Rangappa. It's good to see you. Let's start with Gates. Um, This is about Gates's friends and the women. Uh, If the women speak and say, I was underage, he's doomed. If they speak and say, I was paid to go and do things, he's got trouble. This guy, Greenberg, checks the friend box and knows the girls. Him pleading guilty is what we have to see for him to get a plea deal, right? Yes. So if they're giving him a plea deal, he is likely giving cooperation and giving information. And here are the pros and cons, Chris. Um, uh, Greenberg has kind of the he's the the storyteller here. Like if there are financial transactions that uh, investigators have, for example, a payment that's intended for tuition or salad, um, Greenberg is the one who can say, "Yeah, this is what we meant by that." He's if one of the ones. Record, he's one of the ones one with his Venmo ones. transactions. He can say it, but there are other guys and other transactions. Right. This is where we went. This is what we did. The problem with Greenberg is that he's facing uh, a 33 count indictment. Right. Um, one of the counts of which is for falsely accusing someone of engaging in pedophilia. So he's not the most credible witness. And so they need other people. And this is where, you know, getting either victims, uh, people, other people who were present, uh, Matt Gates's ex-girlfriend to corroborate that information is really important. I'll also point out here, Chris, that there is another piece of evidence uh, where Greenberg had written a letter to Roger Stone. The Daily Beast reported this, where he was trying to angle for a pardon and he kind of confesses to these activities before he's cooperating with federal prosecutors. So in many ways, this is kind of against his interest and kind of lends more credibility to this implication that that Matt Gates was involved with with this activity. Right. And look, Greenberg's not credible, but documents are. And if he can direct them to what other kinds of transactions other people had with Gates and women, that's only as good as the proof that they can get. But it's a hell of a direction. I just want people to understand he's pleading guilty, not because he's changing his mind. It's because he had to to get the deal. And he'd only get the deal if he had already been cooperating. And in the middle district where this is happening in Florida, cooperation going forward is mandatory. So he is definitely going to keep helping them. The only question is how. All right. Now, the other one uh, that is much more intriguing, if they get Weisselberg, um, now a judge won't grant a subpoena to get a witness to flip, right? So who does, so why does who pays for school matter? So what prosecutors are looking at is whether Uh, the Trump organization was paying the tuition for Weisselberg's grandchildren and whether that would have been, it had to have been declared as income um, on taxes. And if it wasn't, then there might be some tax implications. It has to be income. It has to be income for them or booked as a gift by Trump. Somebody had to book it. So, yes, it has to be declared. It has to be, you know, uh, characterizes something. But the, the key here is you have potential tax implications. And what I would say, Chris, is that when you have state tax liability, there is also a a likelihood that you may have federal tax liability. And Mm. once you get the IRS involved, then that also potentially increases the pressure. Why this is important 
because this can create leverage on Weisselberg and Weisselberg knows where the bodies are buried, so to speak. So, um, you know, as you said, he's been intimately involved with Trump's finances. And the reason that this is really problematic for Trump is that unlike things like obstruction of justice with the Mueller investigation, um, which, for which he has, say, constitutional defenses, Article II defenses, or the incitement uh, issue, which has, you know, he has First Amendment defenses, mm -hmm. and these are all federal. These are potential state charges, and these predate the presidency, and they have a paper trail. So I think that this is where Trump potentially has the most criminal liability. And the, the person who can spill all the right. beans is Alan Weisselberg. And to be clear, it's not that they're going to get Trump for paying for these, um, you know, tuitions or whatever. It's going to be that those grandkids. Other things that he can talk about. Right. Yes. And the grandkids are Weisselberg's grandkids, which means this is his son's. And his ex-daughter-in-law, who was married to one of his sons, told us on the show she thinks that Weisselberg is going to turn on Trump. And when I said why, the sons have too much liability. Maybe she was talking about exactly this, and she would know she was the mom. Asha Rangappa, thank you very much. Appreciate you. All right, as you heard us talking earlier with Dr. Besser, eight New York Yankees have tested positive for COVID. <gasps> Vaccine doesn't work. No, I don't think that's what it tells us. I don't think it's what it tells us. So what do we learn from eight Yankees being fully vaccinated? Well, I'll tell you what we learn right after this. The Yankees, the Yankees. Let's talk about the Yankees. All right. Let's separate the yap from what matters. We do know this. They can almost fill a starting lineup with the number of, um, you know, players that have had break through cases, which means they were vaccinated and still got COVID. Uh, you have uh, shortstop Torres, uh, Gliber Torres is now the eighth member of the organization to test positive after being fully vaccinated. So what does this mean? Well, only one person is showing symptoms. See, and that's the key to being vaccinated is that you may still get it, but you won't be that sick and you're certainly not going to get hospitalized the same way or God forbid die. The Johnson and Johnson vaccine, which was what they got, which is the one shot. And the J&J &J has gotten some dings that I think are unfair, but that's not about this. The overall efficacy of the J&J &J single shot is 72 percent in the United States. All right. Now, with that as context, let's get after it with Dr. Ashish Jha. It's good to see you. Uh, I see the Yankees as a red herring and as a false flag to be scared. Why? Because 72% is the uh, cumulative efficacy on this, and 78% of the people they gave it to within the squad have been fine. I mean, isn't that the end of the discussion? Yeah. So, Chris, first, thing, thanks for having me back. Uh, look, um, we're going to see things like this. I agree with you. It's a false flag in the sense that this is not some like game changer about how the vaccines work. We've given these vaccines to tens of millions of people. We're going to see little outbreaks like this. We're going to see breakthrough infections. Nobody has gotten really sick. One person with mild symptoms, seven other people with no symptoms at all. Imagine what, what would happen if those people weren't vaccinated. We would have seen a large outbreak, lots of people getting very sick. So I see this as a success story, too. Um, the case counts. We're all watching. I wonder if they are all off because the CDC isn't tracking breakthrough cases. And the only way you'd know is if you got tested and were symptomatic. And most of these breakthrough cases are non-symptomatic. So do we even know what the heck we're talking about with this out of uh, these 9,245 cases out of 95 million? 
You know what I mean? Like, is that worth anything? Yeah, well, there are two parts of that question. I mean, first of all, we did in the clinical trials do a lot of testing of people who are vaccinated. And we know from the clinical trials that vaccinations reduces asymptomatic cases by 80 to 90%. So we know these, these vaccines prevent transmission pretty substantially. The second question is, do you even care about that other 10 to 20%? If somebody gets a little bit of a breakthrough infection, they have very low viral loads. That means they're not sick, they don't have any symptoms, and they can't spread it to others. You sort of have to ask yourself, okay, we're going to have a few of those. I don't know how much I care if I miss some of them. Mm. What do you make of this argument that, well, now you did it. You told people they can take the masks off. Now everybody's going to take them off and just say they were vaccinated. Yeah, look, CDC is between a rock and a hard place. I, I actually, I agree with the CDC's decision today. Um, they're, they're staying with the science, and the science is that if you're fully vaccinated, you can be indoors. Now, people are saying, well, how am I going to know who's fully vaccinated? You're not, which is why I think we should not be lifting the indoor mask mandate quite yet. I've been asking governors to hold off for another month. That gives everybody who wants to be vaccinated a chance to get vaccinated. After that, I, look, People who are unvaccinated. Wait a minute, why are you telling them to masks? hold off for a month when the CDC just said the CDC just said you can do it now? No, no, no. CDC said fully vaccinated people don't have to be masked uh, indoors. Right. What I'm saying is there's still lots of unvaccinated. Oh, okay, I got, you, vaccinated. I got you. I got you. I got you. So just as a general rule, so if somebody walks in and says no, but I'm vaccinated, you just want them to be patient. Yeah, I want them to be patient because I want everybody who wants to get a vaccine, I want them to have had a chance to get that vaccine and be fully vaccinated. Um, but the truth is, you're absolutely right. We're going to end up having unvaccinated people indoors, unmasked, and there's not much we can do to prevent all those people uh, from harming themselves or harming other unvaccinated people. That's the unfortunate reality of where we are. I hope you also tell the governors, have your own state pass. You've got the roles of who got the vaccine. You know, we have the Excelsior pass here. It's not perfect. You know, there's a little bit of a lag time. I think that, you know, if they catch up with who got it, you know, you have to wait the 14 days until after. But it's a nice tool to have. Uh, it's a nice tool to have. Ashish Jha, thank you very much, Doc. Appreciate you. Thank All you, right, President Biden is trying to ease fears on another front, okay? He's got a lot on his plate. People are spooked about gas prices and they are spooked about how vulnerable the infrastructure is because of this pipeline uh, attack. And you know what? They are right. He says panic buying is only going to slow the process of getting things back to normal. He's true. But guess what? We're weak. And this is what we do. Haven't you seen us in the pandemic? Weak people make for hard times. So where has this hit the hardest? Where do gas prices stand now? And what do we see coming as a result? Look who's here, the man with the numbers, the Wizard of Odds, next. New details emerging about the Colonial Pipeline cyber attack. Sources tell us the company has paid the ransomware group known as Darkside. We know the criminal gang based out of Russia demanded nearly $5 million in ransom. We don't know how much was paid or one, or when. But after a six-day shutdown, we do know that the pipeline is back up. It's going to take time, though, before things get back to normal. Stations all across the Southeast are still facing outages. New data tells us the panic buying is not the only problem in the crisis. So what are the other factors? Harry Enten, the Wizard of Odds, is here. What are we seeing in terms of who got hit hardest? Uh, you put it correctly in your op opening there. It's the Southeast United States. 
And what's so interesting, it's, it's throughout the South and places that weren't necessarily seeing these fuel shortages, say, yesterday, are now seeing them today. So Washington, D.C., look at this, 73% of gas stations without fuel. North Carolina, 70%. South Carolina, 53%. Virginia, 50% without fuel. Even down in Florida, 29% without fuel. And what we've seen throughout the last couple of days is sort of as the news has gotten out about these shortages, more people are panic buying and these numbers have been rising a lot of these different places. You know, I was looking at gas, buddy. You know, you can't cross index for income. And I always wonder whether or not this type of distribution of pain is also indexed uh, by socioeconomics. Like if you go in the poorer areas, I wonder if the stations there um, stay at the same percentages or even higher. Uh, Despite officials trying to urge calm, as you just said, panic buying is going and it's pushing prices. How much? It's pushing prices to the highest level since 2014. Look at this. Over $3 a gallon. That's up 17 cents from where we were a month ago. A year ago, when we were right in the heart of the pandemic, right at the beginning, we were under $2. We're even above where we were two years ago, right at 286. So what we're seeing is this is a, a regional story, yes, in terms of where we're seeing the gas shortages, but it's also a national story in terms of that, that it is spiking the fuel prices in a lot of different places. And we're seeing this indication here right now, over $3 a gallon. I, you know, as I said, we haven't seen it since 2014. It's just part of that national story. The regional story has become national. You and I talk all the time about how important gas prices are uh, on a national level in terms of household economics. Uh, now, I said in, in the office when you were scarfing down my dinner that, um, <laughs> well, this is going to happen and then it's going to end and this is uh, a, a scare and it's worth it. You say, no, it's not just a scare. We're going to see this throughout the summer and not just because of prices. How so? Yeah, to me, this story is so interesting insofar it intersects with a lot of different things. You know, remember last week we were talking about people, there was a supply shortage for jobs, right? People weren't necessarily applying to jobs. This applies here too, and it has to do with the people who actually drive the fuel to the different stations. What do we see? Fuel tanker drivers that are parked because there are no drivers. We're expecting 20 to 25% of the fuel tankers to be parked because of no drivers, that is significantly higher than we were two years ago at this point at just 10%. So this is a story that really intercedes with a lot of things. So even though, look, the pipeline is going to get back up, it's very possible that we could see elevated gas prices because we're not getting the folks in those trucks to actually drive the fuel to the gas stations. There may be correlation, but not causation at the pipeline thing. They just may have a labor shortage. I think we have to go back to that story. Every person I talk to. And remember, the reach is great. You know, yeah, sure, I live in New York City, but I have a radio show on SXM and, you know, uh, two podcasts now. So I have a lot of reach. Congratulations. People coming at me. That's not what it's about. What I'm trying to say is I have a lot of people telling me what I don't know. And the point is they say to an employer, I can't get them to work because they're making more money at home. That is becoming the dominant narrative on why people coming back. And I watch the read the I, I read the work at CNN and other places. Do you think that that is becoming the main reason that they can't find service industry labor? I'm sure it's part of it, right? It has to be at least part of it, but I don't think it tells the entire story, right? I think the pandemic, for one thing, has changed a lot of people's minds on what they necessarily want to do for a living. They've stayed at home. They've realized certain things. But they can't I- stay at home if they can't live And they're getting paid to live. That's why you see states trying to short them on the unemployment. What do you think of that move? And what do you think the reality is about how many are just living fat and happy? 
off the extra vig from the federal government. Look, it's certainly the case that it's some of it, but you know, it's, look, if you're driving a truck, it's one thing, right? You're pretty isolated. But if you're going to go back to say, you know, a place in which you're interacting with a lot of people and you don't know whether or not they're vaccinated, and maybe you haven't gotten a chance to get the vaccine because you work, you might have to work hard. There's a possibility you might get COVID from there. So that's one factor. That's certainly a lot. Another factor that I think we pointed out uh, last week is that I think there are a lot of people who don't necessarily know the jobs that are available to them from time to time. And the, you know, I just think that there are a lot of different factors that are interceding here. Yes, it is possible that folks are staying at home because they're getting that unemployment insurance. But as we spoke about last week, it's, it's just one of many factors that I think are at play. And I think it's sort of this easy crutch for people to lay upon just pointing out that when there are a lot of different factors that are going on. I mean, saying that living off the dole makes people not want to work is not a new trope. Uh, in politics, and it is often discriminatory and doesn't get the whole picture. One, we'll see here. Quick, one, go. One little thing I'll just point out. Also, get the kids back in school because there are a lot of parents yes. that have to stay home because they have to take care of the kids. Getting the kids back in school, I think, could really put at ease, at least in terms of the larger picture. Strong point. Harry Anton, Wizard of Odds, thank you. Thanks. We'll be right back. All right, that is it for us tonight. We have the big show now. CNN tonight with a big star, D. Lemon. Oh, the unmasking. Put it back on. By the way, that's Scott Beagle, one of my personal heroes from Marjorie Douglas, Douglas Stillman High that's School. Right, you can wear a pin now. Yeah. <laughs> no, I have a shirt. I wore a shirt today. I actually worked out in it. Uh, so I'm happy to, to be able to take the mask off outside safely, fully vaccinated, of course, still following the, the correct protocols. The CDC says inside, yeah. outside, with vaccinated, with unvaccinated, yeah. uh, some qualifications on buses and planes. But of course, it's also going to matter what the place where you are, what yeah. their policy is, because the CDC is just a recommendation. I almost walked into the studio with you. Yeah. Maybe I'll do that. I'll go. Yeah, nah. come on in. <laughs> you want me to come to you? It's really your show. Not really. Not really. Show you're, how much bigger I am? No, I you're stinky and you're weird. Are you going to uh, keep wearing a mask because you don't want to offend people? No, I'm going to keep wearing a mask because I don't know if someone is immunocompromised. And I, I think I want to set an example for those who are not fully vaccinated. Um, no, I'm not going to keep wearing a mask outside. I will probably indoors. And I actually went into um, a public space today, a mall, and everyone had, they asked me to put my mask on, and I did, because it's not the rules here yet. Mm-hmm. It is by state and municipality. And they said New York City. And by New business. York state, yeah, and by business. New York State has not adopted the guidelines yet. So tomorrow, maybe in New York, in public spaces, indoors, people won't be wearing masks, but we'll see. Uh, but you're right. Yeah, that's when they say no shirt, no shoes, no service. Business can still tell you no mask, no service, so you must carry your mask around and abide by the guidelines. And I will happily, gladly do that because what? This is not, I'm not doing it for me, I'm doing it for other people. And that's it. I want to be a good citizen and a good human being. The only push I have on it is that's not what the science says, but you can be courteous anyway. I I understand that. You can be courteous anyway. Yeah, but that's really, I'm sending a message to the people who are pretending pretending they are vaccinated because you know there are going to be people, I'm vaccinated, and they're not vaccinated at all. What do you think about the head of the CDC saying to me on the show last night? Well, we got to make sure, we got to make sure. I told you it was a great interview. But she said, we got to make sure, we got to make sure. And then they announced it the next day. Yeah. (laughs) Well, maybe they made sure in those hours, Chris. You never know. I got to tell you what, though, um, you want to f- you, you went. So when, when this was happening, we were in the height of covid. We were in the middle of covid, not in the height, but in, we were in the thick of it. 
when that insurrection on Capitol Hill happened. Oh, yeah. And you had those officers out there with all those people, some of them not wearing masks. <laughs> That's and, that was, right. That was the least of their threat. But right. yes. Yeah. So you had them out there. The reason I'm, I'm getting to that is because Officer Michael Fanone is on tonight live. Um, he wants to respond to what they've been saying, what, what some members of our government have been saying about an insurrect, the insurrection, whitewashing it, playing it down. And he wants to respond to the video that, that was played last night. So we're going to talk to him about it. I'll tell you what, I'd love to see them say what they say to him. And I don't mean this in a tough guy way. Yeah. But you tell a lie like that to a guy who paid the price for your own perfidy. Yeah. I'll be watching. D. Lemon, I love yeah, it. Yeah, and he wants, he wants to sit down with specifically one person or maybe two or three or four or a couple hundred and watch that video with him and then tell him to his face that that wasn't real. I'll see you tomorrow. Thank you, brother. I'll be watching. Love you, sir. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.